my name is Kenton Chan. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm one of the elders here at Stapleton Church, and I'm so blessed to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Um, so as I was studying uh, this, this passage, which we're going to look at in just a, a few minutes here, uh, there's actually a different verse that just kept coming to mind, not on purpose, but I figured why fight it? Um, let's just go ahead and bring that up front. And uh, so I wanted to actually do this in a way that uh, creates some audience participation because it's a verse that most, if not all of you know, even if you don't attend church regularly, I'll bet you know this one. And it's Romans 8.28. So in Romans 8.28, we read that we know that, anyone, anyone? In all things, God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose, right? And this is a, a really powerful verse. I, I think there's a good reason why it's plastered on the kitchen walls and living rooms of so many houses across this country of both Christians and non-Christians because it's a reminder that even when you know, things go a little bit awry and not as we planned, that God has a purpose um, for those things that are happening to us. But we sometimes forget that the verse starts with the words, in all things. And what does all things mean? Right, it means everything. It means all things. And so, you know, it's really easy to recall this message when, or this verse when we don't get that promotion at work that we wanted, or when there's a bully at school that picks on us day after day after day, or when the doctor's diagnosis becomes our worst nightmare at home. These words bring encouragement and they bring hope into our lives. And for good reason, the, the creator of the entire universe is working through those things for our good. And he absolutely is. So I don't want you to forget that. But it's also easy to forget that when things are going the way that we had planned, when things do work out for us, that God is also working through those things. When we get that promotion at work or at school, if we respond in love to our tormentors or against all odds, we beat the medical diagnosis, what then? Do we still have the same encouragement in this verse that God is working through those things for those who are called called according to his purpose. When we have all the stuff that we want and we get the things that we need, it can be easy to forget that God is working through those things too and those things that we wanted aren't the end of God's story for us. Now, if you turn with me to the book of Esther in the Old Testament, I think we'll we'll see a little bit of what, what I mean by that. Now, the story of Esther takes place in the Persian Empire under the reign of King Xerxes. Now, some of your translations might say Ahasuerus. I had like half of my translations say Xerxes, half said Ahasuerus. Xerxes is a lot easier to say. I'm going to stick with that one. Ahasuerus is just the Hebrew version of Xerxes. Um, But at this time, the Persian Empire, if you think back to your history class, was one of the most influential empires in the history of the world. At its peak, um, it it reigned over nearly half of the world's population at the time. And King Xerxes ruled at the peak of the Persian Empire. 
And look at what happens in chapter 1, verse 4 of, of Esther. We see that King Xerxes wants to show the world how great the empire is, how amazing the stuff is that he has, frankly, how amazing he is. And it says, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So for six months, he has a celebration throughout the empire just to show people how great he is. And if you were to continue into verse 5, you'll see that he actually caps off this six-month-long celebration with a seven-day-long banquet. And at this banquet, all of the guests, we're told in chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that the king's command uh, was that each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So what is this saying? It's saying that for six months, King Xerxes had a party, and he capped off that party with a seven-day-long after-party. I mean, I don't even know if the most notorious partiers today, I wish I knew some of those names, but I don't, but the most notorious partiers today would not hold a candle to King Xerxes. And as we kind of continue... Um, we kind of see that King Xerxes had it all, right? He's the king of the most powerful empire at the time and one of the most, if not the most, in the entire history of the world. And I think that this is a picture of what extreme extravagance and self-conceit looks like. And it's not easy, it's not that difficult to to really say, is this what the picture of a fulfilled, purpose-filled life looks like? Well, don't worry, King Xerxes is not the hero of this story. But can you imagine that? A six-month-long party. Now, at the end of this party, his seven-day-long banquet, in a drunken uh, stupor, we're told that King Xerxes commanded his queen, Queen Vashti, to appear before him and his drunken buddies. And she declines. Can you blame her? I mean, that's pretty degrading right? She's a, we're told she's a very beautiful queen, and King Xerxes just wants to show off her beauty in front of all of his friends. So I don't blame her for denying him. And King Xerxes responded calmly and said, that's right, if you don't want to do that, honey, that's fine. No, what he actually did was he was drunk, and he flew off the handle, and he strips her of her crown, and he banishes her from his presence forever. So this, this is kind of an amusing start to the story, right? I mean, would anyone among us really think that, hey, this is the lifestyle that I want? I know we can kind of dream about having some of the things that he has, but you know, I don't think it's the life that any of us really want to have because is there really much purpose behind it? But I also kind of wonder if this setting is not that far removed from the one in which we all find ourselves in today, myself included. I mean, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Some people participated in Black Friday, Small Business Saturday. And we have so many things available to us at our fingertips that, like the king's guests, we can be served whatever we wish and partake in whatever we want to partake in because 
It's all accessible to us. Now, we may not live within the walls of a palace, but we certainly have the luxuries of one, don't we? So getting back to our story, after the king's banquets ended, um, and he you know, probably sobered up at some point, he realized that he had just fired his queen. Well, what kind of king doesn't have a queen? So thus ensues the Persian Empire's version of The Bachelor. <laughs> now, remember, the Persian Empire ruled over nearly half of the world's population, so I think it's safe to say that the contestant pool was pretty large. And we're told that a search was made throughout the entire kingdom for the most beautiful young women in the empire, and they were brought to the city of Susa, where the palace was at. Now, among those young women were introduced to Esther. We don't get a lot of her background, but what we are told is that she was a Jew, and the Jews in the Persian Empire were exiles. They were foreigners, immigrants. They had been brought there by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, one of um, the forefathers of King Xerxes. So they were living in this empire as exiles, And we're also told that she was an orphan, and she was adopted by her cousin Mordecai when her father and her mother passed away. Um, Now, Mordecai is going to become extremely important to this story, but we're going to come back to him in just a few minutes. And the other thing that we're told about Esther is that she was extremely beautiful. In chapter 2, she's described as being lovely in form and features. So husbands... What I want you to learn today is go home, tell your wives you're very lovely in form and feature. It's a compliment from the Bible. And her beauty won her the favor of everyone that she met. Now, in this season of The the Bachelor, the women were brought to the city of Susa, and they were placed in the king's harem under the care of a trusted servant, and they were given 12 months of beauty treatments and special foods. So essentially their job for an entire year was just to do whatever they could to make themselves as beautiful, as attractive as possible before appearing before the king. Now, when Esther went to the king's harem, Mordecai had given her instructions not to reveal her faith, not to reveal her background and her nationality as a Jew to anyone. Well, why would this be the case? I mean, I can kind of guess, right? I mean, being a foreigner would probably immediately disqualify her from being queen in the Persian Empire. So some time goes by, and Esther gets her 12 months of beauty treatment, and the king had not yet found a young woman with whom he was pleased. So it came time for Esther to be summoned to the king. And what do you think happened when young women from the king's harem were summoned to his quarters? Well, in chapter 2, verse 14, we're told that in the morning she would go there, and in the morning, I'm sorry, in the evening she would go there, and in the morning she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So although it's not explicitly stated, I don't think it's a stretch to say that these young women 
slept with the king in hopes of being named queen, and when they weren't, they were sent to live with the rest of the young women who had done the same thing, the concubines, to live out the rest of their lives, probably. They were unworthy of being queen, and yet they were also no longer able to be married because they were no longer virgins. But as we hear about Esther in verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So in order to obtain her crown, all Esther had to do was hide from her faith and surrender her moral standards. Does this sound like a heroine to you? Someone who deserves to have a book of the Bible named after her? But putting personal comfort and safety and personal achievement ahead of our moral and spiritual standards, isn't that something that we do today? Maybe not in the same way, but what are some ways that we do that? I was thinking about this. Being in the financial industry, I followed this story about the Wells Fargo fake accounts uh, that we learned about back in 2016. If you recall, we learned that over the course of at least four years, more than 5,000 employees of Wells Fargo participated in opening fake accounts on behalf of former and current Wells Fargo customers in order to meet their sales quotas. Now, although it was bank leaders and corporate initiatives that fostered this type of toxic environment, what really struck me was that it was actually the low-level employees who chose to commit fraud over and over again. More than a million times, they opened these fake accounts committing fraud. And what the fired employees would would tell, tell us later is that they were under constant sales pressure. They were being yelled at by managers. There were mandatory weekend calling sessions. Some of them even faced threats of losing their jobs if they failed to meet these arbitrary sales quotas that had been set up by corporate leaders. But it was still the individuals who chose to commit fraud. The employees had convinced themselves that they needed that job in order to provide for their families, in order to provide clothing, shelter, food, good things that we all need to do. We are called to provide for our families. But in order to keep those jobs, they chose to commit fraud over a million times. But what would you do if faced with that situation? I hope I never fall into that situation because I I don't know. I don't know if I would have the strength to stand up for what I believe in and hold to a moral standard that says, yes, I need this job, but not at the expense of what God has told me is right and true. So like Esther, when we compromise God's perfect standards to achieve our goals, God can still work through those things for good. Let's continue in in the story. So in Esther's case, she 
had achieved her goal, right? She became queen of the Persian Empire. That's pretty amazing. Think of everything that she had available to her as queen. But we're also told that she continued to keep quiet about her background and her nationality. And why did she lie about her faith? Well, now that she's queen, couldn't she just, you know, come out as a child of God, as a Jew? Well, I mean, if we think back to Queen Vashti, she got banished and stripped of her crown for just refusing to appear at a banquet. What would the king do if she came out as a foreigner, as an exiled Jew in the kingdom? So she keeps quiet. And at this point in chapter three, the story shifts gears just a little bit to shed some light on a couple other characters. We're not gonna cover them in depth, but I do wanna make sure that we all kind of understand why Haman and Mordecai are brought up in chapter three because it is extremely important to see how God is working through them for his plan. So at this time, Haman was an official or a noble in, in, the, in Xerxes' empire, and he had been promoted or elevated above all other nobles and officials. And we're told that all the people were bowing down and paying honor to Haman. I mean, he's essentially like a five-star general in today's, in today's culture, right? So he is, you better respect this guy. But we're told that everyone paid him honor except Mordecai. And how does Haman respond? Well, Haman responds in anger. And we're told in Esther, chapter 3, verse 6, Haman says, having learned who Mordecai's people were, remember, Mordecai's a Jew, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, and instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, living in the, Pers- in the whole kingdom of Xerxes. That's a bit of an overreaction, isn't it? Because one guy fails to pay honor all of his people are going to suffer for it and be destroyed. Well, we need to understand that Haman, we're told a couple of times in chapter 3, was an Agagite. Normally, when we hear about all these different lineages in the Bible, we skip over them because, frankly, we don't know what they mean. Well, this actually comes into play here because Haman was an Agagite. And if we were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we don't have time to cover this in detail, but what we're told in, in chapter 15 is that Samuel, a prophet at the time, um, came to King Saul. Well, why is King Saul important? Well, remember, Mordecai is a Jew, of course, and so was King Saul. But more specifically, we're told that Mordecai was a Benjamite of the tribe of Benjamin, one of Joseph's brothers who we've been learning about the last few weeks. We're told that he was a descendant of Kish, who is the father of King Saul. And Samuel brings a word of God to King Saul and says, go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy them. Essentially, don't leave any survivors. And King Saul takes his army And he does go to battle with them. God says, I will be with you in that battle. I will deliver them into your hands. And King Saul and his army are victorious. But King Saul decides that he's going to be compassionate and humane. And instead of destroying all of the Amalekites, men, women, and children, 
he decides, I'm going to let some of them live, take them prisoner, and I'm going to even spare their king, King Agag. Well, we read a little bit further on in, in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15 that once Samuel finds out about this, he's, he's sent by the Lord to King Saul. And the Lord is distressed that he has put King Saul in this position, and yet he disobeyed God's commands. And we're told that Samuel takes his sword and kills King Agag. If you have a different translation than the NIV, Maybe you've got the ESV. It's a little bit more graphic. It says that he takes his sword and hacked Agag to pieces. So when we come back 500 years later, Haman is a descendant of King Agag. And when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and a descendant of King Saul, the very people who had killed his descendant, his forefather, sorry, Suddenly, that personal offense of not bowing down and paying honor becomes a family feud spanning more than 500 years. And so we see that Haman reacts by saying, I'm going to end this family feud once and for all. I will destroy all of the Jews living in the Persian Empire. And being elevated to essentially the highest position Above all of the other nobles, Haman had the ability to make this happen. So he went before the king and asked that the king issue a decree that all of the Jews living in Persia be killed about a year from now. Um, It was the first of the month, and they decided at the end of the year, the 12th month, we're going to destroy all of the Jews. And so the king does issue that decree, And what we hear about then is that Mordecai then puts on sackcloth. He goes to the city gates and he is weeping and wailing for his people, for Esther's people at the gates of the palace. And when Esther hears about this, she sends her servants to find out to find out what's going on. And she doesn't just send her servants. It says that she was greatly distressed She was troubled by the fact that Mordecai was hurting and she wanted to find out what she could do. She even sent him a new set of clothing to put on so that he could take off that itchy, scratchy sackcloth that he was wearing. However, Mordecai refuses to put on that new clothing and he sends the servants away. And when Esther's servants returned to her, She sent them back to Mordecai to find out what was troubling him. And he told her all that Haman was planning as far as the destruction of the Jews in Persia. And he urged her to go before the king and plead for mercy for the Jews. And Esther responds, no. Are you kidding me? I cannot do such a thing. Going to the king would put her lifestyle at risk. It would put her life at risk because no one goes before the king unless summoned by the king. In chapter 4, verse 11, it says that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, no other option, that he be put to death. The only exception to this 
was for the king to extend the scepter to him and spare his life. So this is what Esther was facing. Was she being unreasonable? She responded with compassion, right? When she heard about Mordecai's weeping and wailing, she was greatly distressed. She sent him new clothes. And this one kind of hits home for me because it seems like every month, if not every week, we hear about some sort of natural disaster around the world or across the country or even something going on much closer to home that's putting people's lives at risk. People are in pain, they're in need. And so we hear the commercials, we hear their pleas, we get their letters, please, please, please donate and send money, send water, food, shelter, clothing. And frankly, I think we do a great job of this. We could always do better, but man, when people are in need, we respond, especially the church, right? We respond by going online and making an electronic transfer to donate to those people in need, or we gather up some old clothing from our home, or we buy new toys that kids need, all to help provide to these people in need. And so we respond compassionately to these material needs that we see around us. But I know I do this next thing. What happens when the request, the ask, is no longer send material resources, but instead come? How does our response change then? I know I come up with any number of excuses. I don't have enough time off to do that. My family needs me at home. I have, I don't know what it is, but I come up with any number of excuses. And I think what we can kind of learn from this small snippet of Esther's story here is that God doesn't want us to substitute material giving for sacrificial living. Yes, the material giving is so important, and Jesus even talks about this. But we need to respond compassionately with our actions as well. And so I pray that God will help us learn that, that we wouldn't just respond to the material need, but that we would respond with ourselves in relationship with those people who need it. So one more time, back to Esther. In chapter 4, verse 12, she hears of Haman's plot and she sends back this response to her cousin Mordecai. Or, and, she, um, and he sends back a response to her. And he says, Do not think that because you are in the king's palace, you are in the king's house, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Before we continue in this passage, just take note of Mordecai's Assurance of God's promises. God is never mentioned by name in the entire book of Esther, and yet we can see him everywhere, 
Look at Mordecai's confidence. He says that even if you don't do this, God's deliverance will occur. God doesn't need us, but he invites us to participate. And if you don't, if you refuse to obey because of your personal comfort or your safety, God's plans will still work out as he has made them. And yet you and your father's family, as we're told, will not participate in that deliverance. So continuing in chapter 4, Esther sends her reply to Mordecai, and she says, Go and gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will do as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So this is Esther's moment of truth, right? I mean, we've kind of seen that Esther has made a lot of mistakes along the way. She wasn't perfect. She denied her faith. She slept her way to the throne. She substituted material giving for sacrificial living for her cousin who was in need. And yet here's her moment of truth and her reason for being put in that royal position. And she chooses to pursue God's purpose for her while she was in the palace. Now, notice that Esther doesn't wait for some grand revelation through prayer. She resolves to go and then asks to be strengthened through prayer and fasting. The verse just says fasting, but remember that fasting is always accompanied by prayer. It's not an end in itself. And I think what, what we need to learn from Esther here is that what God wants from us is for us to obey. But I know that sometimes I respond different, differently and that I have responded saying, well, let me pray about that. But is that really just a cop-out? A soft way of saying, I've already decided the answer is no. But I'd rather just say, I'll pray about it. And when I don't get that grand revelation, there's my answer. So God's people were delivered from Haman's destruction. We don't have time to cover the rest of the book of Esther, but what we will say is that after what we will see is that after three days of prayer and fasting, Esther does go before the king. And without being summoned, and can you imagine what she must have felt? I sort of imagine her cringing, trembling in front of the king, just waiting to see if that gold scepter would be extended to her, sparing her life and giving her the opportunity to make a request of the king. Now, when God's people were delivered, there's some irony, as we'll kind of see throughout the rest of the, of the book, that Haman actually ends up getting hanged on the very gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai. God's people were delivered, and all of it was possible because of God's providence. He had put Esther in her royal position for such a time as this. And she responded, in spite of her shortcomings, 
Relief and deliverance did arise for the Jews because Esther pursued God's purpose for her in the palace, and she was willing to say, if I perish, I perish. Now, in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, um, we kind of see a little, a, a quick snapshot of the resolution of this story. And what I think is so appropriate about how God's people were delivered is that they were delivered when Esther finally stops hiding from her faith. We'll see in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7 that she's, she's before the king and she presents her request and she says, and spare my people, this is my request, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. She is no longer hiding from her faith. She is testifying boldly before the king that I am a child of God. I and my people have been scheduled for slaughter, destruction, and we are pleading for your mercy to deliver us from the hand of Haman. So it, it can be easy to forget that we too are God's people in a foreign palace. When we are children of God because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're not citizens of this world, and yet we are here, we are living here, we're exiled in this palace. I know it might not always feel like we live in a palace, but if you pause and and think for a moment about all the luxuries that we have, They pay, the, I know can't, it's not always easy for us here. Times can be tough, and some of you may be going through some difficult trials even as we speak. And yet, when we look at life inside of these borders, it pales in comparison to places like Honduras where people are literally fleeing for their lives, or the Sudan, or in rural China, or even in Bush, Alaska, where they just don't have the luxuries that we have. And who knows that, but that each of us has been brought to this royal position for such a time as this. We just need to pursue our purpose in the palace. Through this amazing story of Esther, God is showing us that he can redeem the mistakes that you and I have made. The countless times when we put our personal comfort, our safety, our own achievements ahead of him. Esther was far from perfect, just like you and me. But like Mordecai, I am convinced that each of us has been brought to this royal position for such a time as this, and that God has a purpose for each of us in this palace. So often, I think we... We think of pursuing God's purpose as a completely different lifestyle, that it requires us to go abroad as missionaries, that it requires us to become a pastor or to start a nonprofit organization and give up whatever it is that we're doing at this very moment in time. But Esther didn't do that. Esther pursued her purpose right then and there in the palace. So how is God asking you to sacrifice your personal comfort, your safety for his purpose? You know, Jesus knows something of what Esther went through. He was in his palace 
his heavenly palace from before the creation of the universe in perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he had made no compromises for his crown. And yet he chose to give up that throne and take up the mantle of sinful men and women. During his time on this earth, Jesus didn't just tell us to live sacrificially. He did it. He didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus perished. Because a gold scepter that would spare his life was not extended to him by Pontius Pilate or by Herod or even by the very people whom he came to save. And Jesus perished on that cross. Yet, because Jesus pursued his purpose, relief and deliverance did come for God's people, for you and for me and for all who call Jesus as uh, their Lord. That deliverance arose for us when he himself rose from the grave three days later. And because Jesus pursued his purpose, we have the assurance that we will never perish when we live for him. How do we know this? Well, Jesus told us. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We don't have to be perfect. Jesus already did that for us. He asks us to follow him and that we have a heart willing to say that if I perish, I perish. And he will reveal that purpose to us while we are in this palace. Now, some of you might be here this morning having never given your life over, never trusted in Jesus Christ. But maybe you came here because you're searching for purpose in your life. Maybe you're here because in spite of what the world tells us, you know that you're not just here because of random chance and time, that each of us has a reason for being here in this palace. Well, as Esther showed us today, you don't need to be perfect in order to follow Jesus Christ. You need only to accept him as the one who gives us ultimate purpose. And if that's you today, if you're looking for that purpose, I encourage you to come speak with me, come speak with any of our elders, our pastor, any member of our prayer team, and we would be more than happy to help you pursue God. Would you pray with me as the band comes up? Lord God, um, we just love you and praise you and thank you so much for your faithfulness that in spite of all of our shortcomings, that we can trust that when we put ourselves aside and pursue you, that your will, your plans will be accomplished in our lives, that no matter the good, the bad, the ugly in our lives, you are working through all of those things for good. Though we don't see that, Father, as we live in this palace that we call home, I pray that you would move each of us to think about and take action in the things that you are calling us to in order to pursue your kingdom. In Jesus Christ, 